Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get the inside scoop with those in the know from the entertainment industry and give them their flowers while they're here. And right now with me, I have someone very special. You all know the group New Edition, of course, and New Kids on the Block. Well, this group was really one of the first groups to come out of Boston to set the stage for those two groups and everything else to come out of the 617. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Daryl Drumgold, Senior from the Untouchables. Daryl, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Ah, uh, it's good to be here, man. Uh, thanks for that uh, nice introduction, man. <laughs> man, that, that's I, what I, I, I wouldn't put. I wasn't prepared for all this, but I'm ready. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out for the pod and explaining the story behind yeah. everything that came from the Boston music scene. Now, where did your love of music come from? And growing up in Boston, was it very much like everybody outside of the Northeast thought that it was with the whole racial tension and the busing that was going on during that time in the late 60s, oh. early 70s? Yeah, well, the, that time, yeah, busting and all that stuff was going on. We was doing again, but with Boston, Boston was basically segregated. You had the blacks in Roxbury, you had the whites in South Boston and Charlestown. You had the Italians in North, and they stayed in their areas. We stayed in ours. Um, Boston was booming back in the days when we was younger. We had stores, we had everything. Then uh, the gentrification started, and it all started during our era, way back in the days when they started closing the schools up taking us out of good schools. I think by the time I was in the fourth grade, I was probably already on the eighth grade level. And then they shut the schools down and took me from three teachers to 21 kids to one teacher with 60 kids. And at that point there, um, now it's time to be tough, you know? So um, it was an interesting time, but um, you know, I wouldn't change um, any of that for anything in the world, man. I mean, we had some really good times, man. Had a lot of fun. So was it like kind of like the Warriors where you had to bop your way back through certain neighborhoods like, oh, don't go here because this project is here or like you said earlier, Italians are here and you kind of had to fight your way back? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you did have the separations because even in, in our communities and stuff like that, you had like um, um, JP projects, OP projects, Cathedral projects, Lenox Street, Mission Hill, um, um was it Warren Gardens, um, like maybe six or seven of us, Mattapan. And like you said, it was all clicky, you know what I'm saying? You stayed in, like I'm from Lower Roxbury, South End area. You know, we grew up in that area and you had your other people in the other areas. Um, one thing that was interesting with us was um, we got chased out of probably every project you can imagine. <laughs> mm. and, um, and, you know, it, it, it was just the, the way it was, you know, um, back in the day when we was actually doing the untouchables and stuff with the popularity. <laughs> so, you know, with girls and everything else like that, they didn't like us coming into any other areas anyway. So, um, you know, but, you know, we, we, we dealt with it. You know, we had our little um, instances here and there. But, um, you know, like I said, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. It was, a, it was basically really a really learning experience. You didn't actually really know how good we actually kind of had it back in them days until actually when you look back now and you look back and see what's going on today and you look back then, we, we might've thought it might've been a bad situation, but to be honest with you, we was in the best situation we could because all we had to do was kind of just grow, but the gentrification sat in, man, and then things just changed um, from like basically 70 to 90, things just changed in Boston. 
right? And as we're saying now across the country, people are getting priced out of areas which was normally affordable. You have to move 30 to 45 minutes out and it's everywhere, you know, being from North Carolina. I've seen mm -hmm. that primarily with Raleigh, Durham, Greensboro, and then right. in DC when I visited. So it's pretty much a situation where it's same game, different time. Yep. It doesn't change. It yeah. does not change. So yeah. Who were some of the musical acts that you grew up listening to and what led you to join The Untouchables? Was it an audition or was it a couple of friends that you knew and said, hey, let's form a group? No, actually, um, what happened was um, um, Brooke, like I said, Brooke just kind of, he, he, he actually was dating my sister. And, um, you know, so them dating, they see us around and it was a bunch of us. So like I said, we grew up, it was a whole, it was a lot of us. And, um, we basically, one day, um, we was at my aunt's house, me and my cousins and everything. We was playing around with like toy drums and doing stuff like that. And we was kind of like singing songs my, with me and my cousins. And uh, I was like four of us and seven of us all together. And um, Brooke kind of was silent one day. And then um, he approached me and he said to me, he says, Daryl, why don't you get your boys together and um, see if we can get a group together. And um, because he's seen the, the close-knit, and um, like I said, Brooke put me underneath his wing, man. And um, what I did was the original Untouchables were uh, myself, my brother Sean, my brother Larry, and Todd and Anthony Clark. So it was the Clarks and the drum goals were that were in the original Untouchables. Um, as time went on, um, my brother Sean left, and we grabbed Andre Rackley. And then my brother Larry left, and then we grabbed my brother Derek Lewis. Um, once Derek Lewis came into the group, me and him just clicked like like white on rice, man. We was really became really really good friends, man. And um, and he actually changed my life as well too, man, because he gave me a little bit more solid foundation. Um, his mom just took me in and treated me just like I was a son. So um, we had some really, you know, we had some really good relationship. We was really close. Um, me and Anthony Clark was really close coming up to the point to where as he couldn't buy a Reese cup and I couldn't buy a Reese cup unless I shared him one and he gave me one. And if he weren't around, I'd had to hold it for him and vice versa. So we, 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 um, you know, we had that tightness. And so Brooke came in and asked me to get together. So I grabbed them guys and that was the start of it. Um, um, we started dancing, we started stepping, didn't really think too much of it, but then we started getting the talent shows. And one thing that I do vividly remember was our very first talent show was at a club called the Hi-Hat, which was every Sunday. You beg your parents to give you a dollar or 50 cents because you had to go to this club because that's where all the talent shows was. And so every Sunday, all the communities would get together and we went down there, Dutley, Dutley Square, which is now Nubian Square, um, and um, get into this club. And it was the most happening scene. I mean, it was a small club. Um, and we were all on the top of each other, had a little dance floor, and everybody was just, I mean, on top of each other. He was actually in the back. You probably couldn't see nothing well unless you were standing on somebody's back. But um, it was, it was um, unbelievable. And uh, the first time we actually did a show, um, the uh, Orchard Park uh, brothers down there in Brooklyn, they had kind of like a little tip. So they gave us a hard time. We had to get isolated. You know, they was trying to get at Brooke and then they kind of squashed things down. We actually went on the stage and, and stunk the place up. Well, yeah. We weren't right. Our heads were all messed up. The, the place was out of Orchard Park anyway, so they were booing us and throwing stuff at us. 
fun. So we got back that week and we broke vowed that we were gonna come back and, and turn this place out. And sure enough, in that one week, we came back the next day and just lit that place up and the untouchable legends begin. Oh um, man. Oh man, so it sounded like the hi-hat was like the Boston version of Apollo where you just pack the place out with your folks, get them to cheer you on, and if the opposing area didn't like you, boo. Now, was yeah. there particular routines and songs that were your go-to staples for talent shows? I'm gonna say that one more time. Were there go-to songs that were staples of yours in your in the talent shows, like Whispers, Blue Magic, Shylight? Oh, we were, we were um, Blue Magic all together. All uh, Blue Magic was our thing. Um, one of our, our um, songs that we've never lost off to was the Blue Magic, Maji Joseph Melody, where we did Spell, My First, My Last, and Right Track. And Brooke, you know, as Brooke is, he laid his steps down. And uh, we never, ever, ever lost off of that song and doing that routine. And actually, when we came back to the hi-hat after we, the first time we was there, we came back and won. They have like a, um, a yearly, uh, they call it the Grammys, which basically all the groups who um, won on Sunday on the talent show would have, uh, would come back for the Grammys for the, the top group. And um, it was so smooth. Um, um, I had an uncle who owned a limousine service and Brooke put us in um, some top hats, the Uncle Sam top hats with the red, white, and blue. We had on the blue suits, we had canes with the little cane with the real red wrapped around them. My uncle came, I'll never forget it. My uncle came, picked us up in Cathedral Projects. We got in there, we got down to the hi-hat and um, the DJ, which I believe her name was Pam. She said the Untouchables just arrived and then the whole club just poured out, poured out, poured out. They gave us a lane right from the door to the, um, to the, um, to the club. And my, my uncle came around, opened the door for us. We stepped out with our high hats and our canes and we slickly walked in and won that Grammy that year, won the first Grammy. And, um, you know, after that, like I said, we took off. But we won a lot of shows and then we started becoming just showcasing the shows, doing our, our steps and stuff like that. Um, but as time went on, like I said, you know, as any young group, we, I think I was maybe 10, 11, 11 maybe when we first started. Um, by time we finished, I was 15, 16. Um, and I was the lead singer in it, but I was the shy one. I was still a little shy. Brooke was smooth like that. But we had Anthony Clark and he was our showman guy. I mean, we all stepped, our stepping was our biggest thing. You know, we were steppers. I mean, we stepped our asses off, excuse my French, but um, yeah, Brooke had a stepping like crazy. And um, you know, back in them days, you had the Untouchables, you had the Soul Superiors, you had the OP Dances, you had Body Construction, which was our biggest nemesis, which we used to always go against them. And um, they were the lock and popping that did all the locking and popping and all that other stuff, while we did the more stepping and singing. Um, and um, like I said, we competed. Um, the hi-hat was the hub. And then, you know, things kind of started opening up a little bit. You had um, Ben's Lounge. You had the um, South End Boys and Girls Club, um, the Lee School. Um, all these places started um, giving shows and stuff like that. And um, it, was a, it was, like I said, it was a great time for the four or five years that I've actually um, I'm spent doing that. And to be honest with you, we was on the crust of probably doing something great 
But um, we were five bad kids. I mean, we was from the city. Um, we were, at that particular time, you know, black is proud. Um, whites couldn't call us the N-word and stuff no more without us doing something back. They, we, they, you know, so times were changing. Um, but the life that I've had in that Untouchables, once um, we kind of knew, the last time we was all together, we was in a studio and um, we was doing some, um, some studio work and um, he had switched Anthony to the, to the lead on that singing on that and we was doing some uh, I Got Sunshine on a cloudy day. And um, that didn't go out too well. And then when we kind of left out of there after that, you can tell the group, we was kind of like at our peak. We, was, we, all, we all need to kind of go our own separate ways. Cause we all were, like I said, um, how, how Brooke managed us to keep us together was amazing. Um, that's one thing that I still marvel at him at because like I said, I wouldn't have the life that I, um, I have today if it weren't for him and him taking the interest in me and then the interest in the group and to put his vision and what he wanted to do in his life um, on the spotlight. And, um, you know, that's what we did. Um, I think at that time when we was young, young, um, at that time, 14, 15, 16 years old, we didn't really realize what we was actually really, really had accomplished. Um, you know, I was doing all, we was, we was all pretty, you know, we was all doing crazy little stuff. Um, and then at the, at the, um, near the tear end, um, for me, it was like, you know what, you know, I lived a nice teenage life, man. And, um, I was ready to kind of just, you know, really settle down, get my life together, get my school grades right, and um, go to college. And um, that's what I did. I found the love of my life, and um, we're still together till this day, since childhood sweethearts, um, for 40 years now. And, oh. um, you know, just changed my life, got things in perspective, man. Um, I, I, I'm a product of um, um, good teaching. I had um, some really good people in my life that molded and shaped me to be the man that I am today. And, uh, which I'm very thankful for. Um, you know, and like I said, that that right there changed my life, made me get back to school, and I never forget it. I was in um, a freshman, no, sophomore, freshman at um, A&T in um, Greensboro. And uh, sure enough, um, New Edition made it off of Candy Girl, and it was actually down in Greensboro. Um, I couldn't get to them at the end to let them know that I was down there, but my first New Edition concert and watching them perform was in Greensboro Coliseum. Oh, man. Yep, in like 83, 84. Yeah, because I remember Bobby saying in interviews that that was one of their first shows down in Greensboro. So what was that like for you seeing new additions rise and knowing that the Untouchables was like the prototype for what they were set to do and take over the world in music man, pride. and joy? Man, pride. Pride. Pride, new edition, all of them. The hot um, of our Boston community. Um, Boston's not big, so we all kind of grew up with each other. Everybody knows each other. All the families know each other. Um, if you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody. That's Boston. Um, we're generational um, 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 friends. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm nine generations in this country. I'm actually sixth generation in my family. So. We've got nothing but um, um, longevity here. And um, like I said, when, when New Edition came out, that was huge. That was big for all of us. It was big for the communities. 
um, it was just, it was, it was big. It was, as, they, they were our family on the limelight and we loved every single minute of it and supported them as much as we could. Yeah, because I didn't know this until the miniseries that Ronnie was actually from Cathedral because I always thought he was from Orchard Park with the rest of the guys. And I yeah. found it was kind of cool how Brooke brought Ronnie in when Maurice yeah. said, hey, we need a five piece. And Brooke taught Ronnie the steps and yep. magic. Yeah. Well, Ronnie, like I said, I used to, we used to babysit. Uh, well, you couldn't say babysit Ronnie because he was, he was a little older. He was probably about maybe 10 at that time when he was teenagers. But um, his little brother, Robert, and Roland and all of them, they were my dudes, man. I love the kids, man. And, um, you know, when, you know, we used to, you know, we all was a village. So we all helped each other out. Florence needed some help. Brooke let us know, hey, we did. Brooke wanted us to babysit. We babysit. And like I said, they weren't baby babies like, you know, was changing. But, you know, they were people that, you know, they were young kids that um, we were responsible for watching grow up. Um, those was, like I said, those was really good times, man. We all just looked out for each other. Um, and that's just the way it was. That's the way we all were raised um, throughout. No matter what project you went to, everything was still the same. Everybody was still raised the same. You know, you, you mess up and anybody catch you, you're getting that tail whooped. And then you're going to get your tail whooped again because you got caught doing something and somebody else said something. Now your family's pissed. So... You know, but um, those was um, 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 great lessons, man. Great, great, great lessons. Um, right. And a life that um, I'll, I'll never forget and I'll always cherish. Right. I could definitely attest to that growing up in rural Northeastern North Carolina, same upbringing, family stayed down the path, as we say in the country, down the road, and you get your butt whooped yep. if you messed up by somebody that knew your folks, and you got it 10 times worse yep. when you get home. Yep. That's definitely, actually right. de definitely that. <laughs> now, did any of the groups cut records locally, um, like the Untouchables, the Transitions, or any other groups that was in the talent show scene? No, to be totally honest with you, no. Um, I think we, we were probably on the crust of probably getting ready to get there, but we were already four years in. And like I said, you know, you got a bunch of kids who started out at 10, 9, 10, 11 years old, we became teenagers, and then, you know, at, at 14, 15, 16, we all felt as though that we were grown men, you know. And, you know, like I said, you know, um, you know, we just started growing apart from each other and really wasn't taking it like we were kind of in the beginning. And, um, you know, when that last little session that we had, and like I said, when we walked out of that session on, on Tremont Street, you felt it. You knew that that was kind of the last time that the Untouchables was um, actually um, um, going to be together. And like I said, we all branched out. We all still stayed in touch with each other. We all stayed close because we all was from Mass Ave. And, and, and one of the things with me is I was, ra I was, born, I was raised in cathedral projects, but my, my mom and them owned a home. So um, one of the things that was fortunate for me was that I actually had friends in all the projects. So I had friends in OP, I had friends in Cathedral, I had friends in Mission, in Mission, in Lennox, and things like that. So um, I didn't go through a lot of some of the things like say the transitions went through. Um, transitions, they were all from uh, Cathedral except when um, they added um, Paul Howard. Paul Howard came to the transition when Derek Lewis came to the Untouchables. Um, Brooke was making some um, adjustments there. And um, one thing about Brooke that was very interesting about Brooke because my beginning years in, in Cathedral, because, you know, what happened was my, mom, my aunt grew up, my aunt 
lived in Cathedral. So her and my mother were our caretakers. And after school every day, we were at Cathedral, at Cathedral, at Cathedral. So that's what we raised for years. That's all I knew was Cathedral. That's where I got all my raising from, all my upbringing, learned all my friends and everything from. And coming in there like that, you know, the Untouchables weren't basically from Cathedral. We were all from Mass Ave. So Brooke brought an outside people into the projects to do this group. So there was a little tension and stuff when we first started doing it. I got into some fights um, and, um, you know, checked myself, you know, we did this. What Brooke did was he says, you know what? I'm going to create another group. And he put them all from Cathedral and he created the transition. Now the untouchables and transitions were, well, one, we were all brothers now. And um, we did a lot of shows together. Um, we didn't really compete against each other. Um, we more or less did like um, shows. People would hire us and we'd go in and we'd do some, you know, some routines and some stuff like that. But um, we actually became a family, a tight-knit family. It was 10 brothers. And I mean, we fought like cats and dogs. But um, in the long run, we were tight. We was really, really tight. We all were brothers, man. And um, I, I'm Brooke laid that foundation. Mm, and from interviewing Brooke, he was telling me a lot of stuff that ended up in the miniseries. He was telling me years before it came out and just seeing the rehearsals of when they were kids, you guys probably went through the same thing and you were probably out drenched in sweat afterwards. Like, oh, hey, you, you yeah. messed up on this eight count. Look, the party's over. Oh yeah, now push-ups, books on your head to make sure you got the right posture going on, drinking eggs to keep our voices and everything tight. Um, yeah, he was, he was a monster at that. Made sure that we were straight push-ups, made sure that we was in shape. Um, and I think that's what attributed to our, our stepping and everything else like that because of the simple fact that um, he stayed on that. That was his pet peeve. And what I loved about, like, when I, when I first saw the movie, I had no idea um, what, was, what I was going to see, what was going to be on, what was going to go on. But um, for him to put that tribute in there, even for the little um, 10 seconds, five seconds of The Untouchables when uh, Mike and him came down to the show and we was on the show and they was doing a thing. That was probably one of the best feelings that I've had in my life, just to see that, okay, you know what? They acknowledged us in this movie, you know? And, you know, we spoke about, spoke about the transitions and stuff like that. Because we, we, were, we were that foundation of that whole scene coming up. And I mean, before us, they were like the energetics and stuff like that. And there were older guys that we used to look at to look up to, watch them sing and dance. And um, they were actually got us together to make sure that we wanted to do it. And then when Brooke approached me and I approached the team and we put it all together and then Brooke just made it happen. Brooke just made it happen. The man with the plan and as all the guys mentioned, the silent one, the seventh mm -hmm. member of any. So new addition is at their height at this time. Then of course they had a falling out with Maurice once they left Streetwise right. to go to MCA. Right. But he comes to back again and says, I'm going to take the same formula with these five kids from Roxbury, go to Dorchester, yeah. do the same thing again with new kids on the block. So what was that right. like, you seeing their early rise and them cutting their teeth amongst the urban crowd in Boston before they exploded? Uh, well, new kids on the block was kind of interesting because I think, was it their second album? I think it was their second. They made that first album, and I think the second album that came out so fast, and, and I could be wrong. Could be wrong. We're gonna have to talk to Maurice about this, but he was working with a group, I believe, called the Superiors. Yeah, uh, the, the Superiors. They originally demoed step by step. 
Yeah. So um, if anyone I think out of all, I think that was probably more the closest of probably what, um, 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 doing an album record because I believe the album, the second album that I believe that the New Kids on the Block did was actually slated for them. But the new kids on the block blew up so much. I mean, it was no brainer. You know what I mean? They blew up so much. And then now, like I said, um, you Maurice could probably spend, a, you know, talk a little bit more about that as far as the treatment of it. But from my understanding, um, that's, that's what kind of went on. And look at like the kid, new kids on the block. Plus, you got to look at it. They're white coming out of Boston. That's 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 a market right there in itself. Um, and um, yeah, um, they came out and um, they blew up, as you know, they blew up like crazy. And I think they probably, I mean, New Edition always did well, but um, you know, I think I remember Mike saying something that they were getting dolls and you know, they got all the marketing, they got everything, you know what I'm saying? But because of um, who they were at that particular time, the next day, you didn't see no white groups like that, you know, even us growing up was all African American, all blacks or Puerto Ricans, you know, mm -hmm. and you didn't see the white groups and then later on after everything kind of changed up and the scene got a little bit more deeper then you know then the new kids in the block and all those guys popped up yeah because when i interviewed danny he was talking about how when they got their star they're performing at the kite festival lee yep. school pretty much in predominantly mm -hmm. urban areas so once yep. pop got a hold of them it felt weird because they were trained to win over the r&b market because please don't go girl was an r&b record and they did a video for it for BET, which he told me Maurice paid out of pocket for and was shot at Larry Wu's house, who later created Finest Hour. And then a pop station played Please Don't Go Girl by accident, and that just lit the fire huh? to start their phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, they, they like I said, that, that, that took off. And then, to be honest with you, all of that opened up the... Um, the Boston scene, and like I said, it's kind of nice to be able to sit back and talk about it because, like I said, that's a, a hidden time that, you know, our society and things up here, they try to shove things underneath the rug so you don't know about it. But those are um, um, great moments that I, I that I think should be shared. And, you know, these young people should understand a lot of things that we went through back in those days and get a better understanding of, of, of where we are right now, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, the racism back in them days, you didn't really think too much about it because it was such an everyday thing. You get on the bus. Um, the teacher, you know, I think sixth grade, seventh grade, going to Yamana in East Boston. Um, you know, we went the most, you know, we didn't have all the money in the world. So any day that you got new clothes for school was a happy time. You know, in the first day of school, you get on the bus and they're teaching you how to get underneath the seat and the box. bus is getting rocked. Well, we're hard-headed. I ain't getting my new clothes dirty getting underneath this seat. Oh, well, when I got out to East Boston and they started rocking those buses, I got my behind underneath there real quick after that, you know. But, um, you know, turn around, you go to school and picket signs and N-words and swears and all kind of crap going on. And you're going into seventh grade, but it was such an everyday thing. You kind of don't really think about it because the education was important because they shut all our schools down for all this gentrification stuff. And, um, you know, like I said, this whole thing, with the whole gentrification and you see the new South and this stuff has been going on since the sixties. Like I said, I, I, I went to CC Perkins, they shut the school down and they turned it into an apartment building. I went to the Carter, they shut it down, turned it into like a, a, a um, special needs um, building and then sent us all the um, public school with one teacher and 60 kids all around the neighborhood, not teaching you really nothing. But I mean, good for me, 
I had educators in my family with my mom and all of them. So they kept us in the books and education from, um, um, I must've been in school from probably two to, um, till I finished my college days, you know, cause um, I've all, my mother's always been an educator. So we've always been educated. Even my brothers growing up in middle and um, elementary school, if you didn't bring home the honor roll, you weren't doing good. And we used to have boxes of honor rolls, me, my brothers and all of us. But when Boston change was after the 60s and the 70s came, that's when the change came. Um, things started closing down. They started closing schools. Because like you got to remember, in our neighborhood in Dudley, Dudley was thriving when I was a little kid. We had everything, our own stores, everything. And in the blink of an eye, boom, it was all gone. Mm -hmm. It was all gone. Oh, it was all man. gone. Just in a blink of an eye, it became a ghost town in the 80s. And then the drug pandemic came in. And, and all that stuff started going on. And to be honest with you, they didn't do nothing about that. We, we, those were lessons that I learned to make sure that when I got older, I wasn't doing those drugs and no heroin and all of that crazy stuff to look like these crazy people. So that was a good experience for me, but um, it was uh, um, not a good sight back in the days because I mean, some really, you saw some really ugly things back in the days during the um, Rano Dad uh, drug epidemic. Yeah, man. So what led you to want to go down to Greensboro, North Carolina, to a little college by the name of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, a.k.a. A&T, and little sidebar, I have family members that went to A&T. Yeah, well, what made me go to A&T was a simple fact that I'm from Boston. So I've always had this kind of, um, you know, Boston, you know, and even in the stigma, everybody thinks, oh, Boston's all white. Boston, I can tell everybody right now, it's always been black. All the people in Boston from the 60s all the way up to, say, the 80s, say, basically to that point. Boston was all black. Roxbury, um, um, South End, um, Potts of Dorchester, um, JP were all black families. Factories were there. Everything was good. They started shutting down the factories. People weren't getting jobs. My parents, everybody all worked back in them days. If nothing would have happened back in then, I guarantee you the black community in Boston would be booming. You wouldn't see all what you see down in the South End right now. It would have been all done over for the basic, for, for us in our future. But what they did was they knew what they wanted to do. They shut it down, let it become a ghost town, took everything away from everybody. Then all these investors came in, bought everything all up, and now you got this. You wouldn't even think blacks lived in the South End the way it is right now. And they don't talk about the culture. They just shut down the um, Harriet Tubman house to build housing. That house, the Harriet Tubman house, probably saved more lives in the city of Boston than, than I, I, I can even count. Um, it was a haven. It was something that was put in the community to, um, to give us outlets. Um, I went to after school programs there. I went, uh, I learned everything in Camp Hill where we, Camp Hill was started. We went out to Camp Hill. And it was in New Hampshire where we could do, um, learn to survive outside. I learned how to camp. I learned how to swim. I learned how to canoe. I learned how to row boat. Um, I learned how to climb mountains. I learned how to rough it during the night and create fires and stuff like that. And what this did was it took inner city kids out of the inner city and brought them into, you know, into New Hampshire, into this camp. And it taught us um, how to um, live and kind of survive outdoors. And um, that was like some of the four years of my best life. And we all friends. All of us all went. So a lot of us from Cathedral and all the other projects and stuff, every year after school, our mothers would have them bags packed. 
get ready for the bus. You're gone for a month. I'll see you later. And we go up to New Hampshire for a month and um, come back, finish out the rest of the summer, go back to school. Man, and um, it was like that for years. Definitely a great experience. And I also find it interesting with how you're talking about the racial dynamics in Boston with me looking at the Lakers Celtics 30 for 30 and how they were talking mm -hmm. about how a lot of the older right. players who were Celtics and black at the time about how racist Boston was and how they catch a lot of flack because you're looking right. at Bird, McHale, Ainge, but Red Auerbach had a lot of black players on the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that, like I said, even even back in them days, like I said, Boston's always had that racial stigma. And even a lot of uh, brothers in Boston, even now, even back in them days, you didn't like the 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 Celtics or whatever because they had, you know, we we understood what was going on. On the outside, you might not have understood it and you've seen it, but we really understood what's going on. But for us, it wasn't really about the Celtics or the Red Sox or anything. It was about that B, about that Boston. And that's where we come from. We're Boston, you know what I mean? So Larry Bird and even the Bruins and the Red Sox and all that, when they represented on the stage and they were doing good and they was having their battles, yeah, we represented Boston, that represented us. But to say that we actually love the team and all of that, nah. Um, because we already knew what was, what was already going on. Um, the same thing with Cornbread Maxwell and all those other guys. Those brothers played. Bill, Bill Russell was probably the greatest NBA player in the world, especially one of the greatest um, on Boston Celtics of all time. And don't get me wrong, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Ainge, and, but Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird was a baller. Um, and he, he produced, so you had to give him his respect, you know, and um, that's just kind of how it was, you know what I'm saying? You represent um, our city, and like I said, when I went to, um, one of my reasons why I went to um, North Carolina E&T was because I've been in Boston all my life, and with the racism and the blacks and white, I wanted to. I went on a black college tour, and um, loved it. And I wanted to go to a black school. That was my thing, and um, I fell in love with A and T. Once I got on that campus, I fell in love with it, and um, got accepted. Um, at that particular time, for me, like I said, um, um, I married my childhood sweetheart. So we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. I was going into college and stuff like that. Um, A&T was um, probably, I left Boston as a boy in 82, and I came back to Boston from A&T in 84 as a man. Um, it kind of put my life in perspective. Um, I struggled at A&T because of the simple fact that I was out of state um, trying to live off of $20 a month, whatever my mother could give me. It was tough, and I worked. And, um, and, and I miss my family because um, I've always been family-orientated. And I didn't have anybody in A&T except for my little Boston crew. And um, I came back home. Um, I got a job at Gillette, um, which was paying good money as a temp. They made me permanent. So I said, okay, um, I'll stay out a year, sit out a semester, make some money, save some money, so I can go down and get some money. And then they made me permanent. So now that they made me permanent, I'm like, oh, okay, I can get on my own now. Um, I can just transfer and go to school here. So me and my wife, um, we got on our own. We left home, we got our own apartment and um, we've never looked back since. Um, I did go back to school. I went to um, Wentworth for a, couple of, um, for a couple of semesters, but too much of the racist and the bigotry 
um, that went on and um, it kind of just turned me off and I had a great job. And at that point there, I was, um, you know, it was about family and me and my wife on um, building our own family and we started our family. Uh-huh. Today, I have, um, I have, I'm going on my fifth grandkid. Oh, congratulations, congratulations. Yeah. And uh, I want to get your thoughts on Bobby got voted out of the group and they bring in Johnny. Did you think that it was going to be a smooth transition with Johnny coming in and then them making the classic masterpiece of Heartbreak? Um, to be honest with you, Johnny was a little um, um, surprised, I guess. Um, we didn't know much of him. Um, we didn't know what they was going to do, but they knew of them. So, um, at first it was kind of a little shocked because you're like, you know, Boston is really, really tight. And, um, if Bobby left that group and a new addition was their own, then they should just stay the four or come grab somebody from the Boston. But they, um, they grabbed Johnny Gill. He fitted in and, um, you know, it's legendary today. Um, right. but, um, Bobby was, um, um, Bobby, and I used to give the analogy that um, the touches is actually five Bobby Browns. <laughs> but um, um, that was an um, interesting time, but it didn't surprise me. Bobby always had that, um, that uniqueness to him, even when he was a little kid, because when we was doing it, they were four, five to four years younger than us. So we seen them growing up as a little kid. Um, I knew Mike probably more than all of them. Uh, Mike was an excellent um, um, baller. He could play some ball, man. And um, good kid, good personality, man. Mike, um, like I said, Mike Mike was, um, like I said, I've probably known him and Ronnie because I watched Ronnie grow up as a little kid. Um, the most out of um, Ralph Ricky and um, Bobby. Bobby, everybody knew Bobby. Everybody knew his family. Everybody knew his uncles. Um, everybody knew of him. So, you know, we all knew of each other. Like I said, Boston was small. So, you know, everybody kind of knew a little bit about everybody and everybody's family. Right. And like you said, Bobby just popped out whenever he came front and center stage and everybody got to see it. Once Don't Be Cruel came out, biggest selling album of 89. And he was the biggest pop oh, R&B yeah. star in the world. What was oh, that yeah, like? No doubt about it. And from Boston. So, you know, uh, yeah, I, like I said, we, 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 we we have that Roxbury on our sleeve, man. I mean, we we really that's that's our home, that's where we're from, and we rep that to the day we die. And like I said, that's the tightness um that we have here in Boston, especially in the community. Like I said, a lot of things have changed, but our souls, um, our love for each other and our friendship and stuff, that'll never change. You know, we can go through our little issues and go through our things, but when it comes push the shove and comes down to it, man, we're all going to support and love each other. Definitely that, because Boston, I mean, you guys could puff your chest out this time because Bobby was on the top of his game. Ralph BBD was coming out doing their thing. New Kids was at their height. Boston was definitely on the map. Now, tell me about Chris Bender, because I know he's from Brockton. He was from Brockton. And he, his voice, man, had his career not been cut short, he would have been big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Chris was, um, he was interesting. He came a little after, like, once we had broke up. But um, I knew his family, and um, that was sad what happened to him. And it was just all over jealousy, man. I mean, he would have been a, a phenomenal um, entertainer. He was actually really that good. Um, that was a sad time. Um, you know, what happened to him shouldn't have happened to him. But, um, you know, you know it's, it's something that did happen. Um, it's a part of our history. 
And, um, you know, um, I just, you know, hopefully he's watching us. Well, I know he's watching down on us and still marveling at what we're doing in the city. Right. So what do you think makes the Boston music scene so special? Like I mentioned, New Edition, New Kids, all of the Splinter Acts off of New Edition, Aerosmith, the Cars. What do you think makes Boston so special the way you have all these influential acts, regardless of different genres, come yep. from such a yep. small area but have a big impact yep. on the world? Well, if, when you come from, if you're from Boston and you live in Boston, uh, even if you're, if you're white, black, you live in Boston, you know, we, had our, we have our little racial differences and we do all that. But you come out of Boston and you meet anybody from Boston, you're tight. There's no racial issues. There's no nothing. I've been on trips where I've met people that from um, the city and we come out and we all look out for each other. And we always do. When you're in, in, in Boston, it's a little different. But when you're out of Boston, no matter if you're a black, white, or indifferent, you're going to be you're, you're tight. We, we, we pull in together. Coming back home is a little different. Okay, you're gonna go to your neighborhood. We're gonna go to ours. We're gonna live our lives. We're gonna be good. But um, there's a genuine love for for us, both black and white. Once we're out of here and we're around each other and we're around other people from other areas, yeah, Boston's gonna stick together, no matter what, no matter what. Yeah, Boston is definitely one of my top five cities that I would want to have on my dark alley team because I know you guys are gonna want to go to bat, go to fight if somebody talks about me. Like, hey. What's good? Yeah, we, let's, yeah, let's we take that up. very serious. <laughs> you know, like you see a lot of these people, I always blame, you know, I, I, you know, this is a tough subject too, but, you know, they always blame Bobby for Whitney and stuff like that. We know Bobby. You know what I mean? I mean, what, what, on, what went on between him and Whitney was between him and Whitney and should be left there. You know what I mean? And um, they had a genuine love for each other, and I appreciate that, you know. Um, but... You know, Bobby's Bobby. Like I said, we're going to support him 100%, just like we're going to support all the rest of the fellas. We're going to support Brooke and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And why is it that you think the local music scene in Boston has not really been properly documented and told on a wider scale? Because this needs to be told on a bigger scale. Well, because, of, um, you know, Boston is small, but, we're, you know, we're controlled by... Um, how can I say it? Uh, our government, basically. And, um, you know, they don't give us a lot of opportunities and stuff like that, cookies and stuff like that. They don't give us those opportunities. And, and they, they've always made it tough for us to get ahead. And I mean, I'm not trying to um, put a spin on it. You know, you, there's opportunities that you can go and take advantage of, but you have to understand that to take care of those, op those opportunities, you got to go through some things in order to get there. So in my case, in order for me to, to, to turn my life around and, and get together, I had to get jobs and I had to deal with the discrimination and, and the racism. Um, I didn't want to be a street guy. I didn't want to be running through all that stuff. I wanted to work. I wanted to take care of my family. But in order for me to do that, I had to keep my head up and I had to deal with all the bull crap. Um, and, um, you know, it's tough. And like I said, I got stories on that as well, you know. But, um, you know, it, it's tough. And um, I think um, because of that, you know, there's a lot of people that should have probably, you know, this, I mean, we've had great education. We had everything here. Um, um, and it was just gone in a flash, just like that. And um, we, became, we became more self-sufficient of our own, even though we were already self-sufficient and we had our own businesses and we had our own everything. But whatever reason, like I said, they shut them all down. This closed, that closed. Um, 
um, houses closed. When I was younger, my, my, my grandfather owned a house on West Brookline Street in the South End and owned a store in Edwards. Um, my grandmother used to take in the, um, when the, when the, the, the um, brothers and sisters from the South used to come up to the North, they, my, my, my um, grandfather and them had a rooming house on West Brookline Street and they used to take them in, find them jobs and get them out there so they get the stuff settled coming up here in the Boston. Well, that didn't go too well with the, um, the Caucasian folks up here. And they basically really chased my father out. My, my grandmother had a heart attack at 44. And then my grandfather sold everything and said he'd never come back to Boston again. And the only time he came back to Boston before he passed was my wedding in um, 87 and my brother's wedding in, in 77. Mm. And uh, uh, the house that he sold back then for $7,500 today goes for $4 million. Oh, man. And you kind of touched on the Great Migration, how a lot of folks who were from the South migrated to the West, Midwest, to the Northeast, and pretty much established themselves. And the routine was, if you were in the South and had family scattered across the country, you would go stay with them for a little bit to get on your feet. And then the next one would come along and it'll just keep going. So it was building that chance to build the new from what you were seeing back in the South. Now, right. I want to touch on how I think a lot of people are seeing now because of the miniseries, how instrumental, not only Brooke West's new edition, but to everybody who he came into contact with, how he was able right. to take kids from this area where a lot of people say nothing good come out of, polish right. them up real nice, put them in yeah. suits, but most yeah. importantly, give them something constructive to do to keep out of trouble because there was a, right. probably a lot of temptation out on the streets during the time where, hey, I could join this game. Hey, I could go sell this. But it's like, no, yeah. I got this rehearsal to go to. I got this right. show to go to. I know yeah. if Brooke finds out that I'm doing this, I'm out of the group. I don't want to oh, yeah. and let him down. Yeah, he definitely, like I said, he put us underneath his wing and he wasn't taking none of that nonsense. Um, you know, he let us grow. He let us um, mature. He let us um, be who we were. He wasn't trying to change us or do anything. What he was trying to do was, like I said, make us all work together. You know, he took our strengths and our weaknesses and he, you know, he, he made it work for us, you know. And, um, and that's something, like I said, he, he just had it. He, he, he had that knack, you know. And, and like I said, um, um, Brooke was instrumental of it, but I got a definitely talk about Burrell and um, Newt. Um, they were his right-hand guys, man. And those guys, like I said, man, they took care of us, man. They took us underneath their wings. We, we were hungry, they fed us. If we needed change, they gave us change. Whatever we needed, they was there for us, you know? And like I said, we were, were, were one unit. And like I said, Brooke Burrell and um, Anthony Newsom, like I said, they were the three amigos, man. They was his, his right and left-hand man. And I Troy, I got to take in Troy Newsom as well. Um, and, um, you know, they all came up. Uh, Brooke had a few groups, um, Touch of Blue. Um, and I also got to give um, um, the dramaticians, um, James Shula, um, Roy Gall, Jason Anderson. Um, who else was in that um, um, group? Roy Gall, Jason Anderson, James Shula. I joined it a little bit afterwards once the Untouchables broke. I came into the dramaticians for a little while and um, we, you know, tried to do some things there. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, those were, um, like I said, those was good times. I'm glad I brought up the dramaticians because 
um, chew on those guys and kill me if I didn't bring them up. <laughs> oh, man. man, so looking back on Boston, like just the impact of just New Edition and New Kids alone, because if you think about it, if it wasn't for these two groups that come from this one area, would not have Battery Boys, would not have NSYNC, would not have 98 Degrees, we would yes. not have Boys to Men. So mm -hmm. just thinking about that and just saying, man, it comes from here. And then with Mike's business acumen to say, hey, these four guys can sing naturally, no beats, no nothing. Mm -hmm. And let me just put them together. And the biggest selling male group of all time, because I think he stated in interviews that it was the risk when It's a Hard came out. Because if you think about it, 91, 92, nobody put a straight acapella record on the radio, but right. it worked. And mm -hmm. did you think, like, knowing Mike as well as you did, that he would have that acumen to say, hey, I'm going to put my own groups together. I'm going to start my own label, Biv 10. And a little bit of sidebar for you that don't know people. Cheryl, um, Yvette Nicole Brown from Community was on Biv 10 with right. Big Ant. So did you see that from Mike Dan, knowing that he would be a shrewd businessman oh. and an innovator? Yeah, Mike had that shine. Mike had that shine. On the court, when you talk to him, um, he was just a real genuine dude, man, young dude. Didn't start no trouble. He didn't mess with him. Um, um, Mike was just that general dude. He was just well-liked. Um, and like I said, he, um, as a young kid, he had incredible ball skills coming out of OP. And um, used to be, I used to love watching him play basketball, man. He was, um, he was, he was that good. And, um, you know, they came out and, um, like I said, we had woke up, I remember one time watching uh, Mike, they was on the Talbot, the Talbot buff, uh, bus going, I think it was going to Lee School or somewhere. And I got on the bus and uh, Mike said, hey, drum girl, what's going on? I'm like, oh, what's up, y'all? And then he pointed to Ralph and then um, he said, there you go right there. And I looked at him, I go, nah, man, you're me, you know? And, um, you know, but that that's who they were, man. And um, we just love those guys, man. We have, um, we all had a lot of respect for each other and um, we looked out for each other, man. And I mean, you know, can't say that enough, um, but um, to be honest with you, when you think about it, yeah, man, we, we definitely have ha had and we ha still have something very special. And, um, you know, it's, it's good that people are talking about it and um, because this, that was a special time and the people involved and the people that even today, you know, like I said, we're generational Bostonians. So we've got friends, like I'm 56, so I've got friends that I've known over 50, over 55 years of my life. Not one, not two, not three, not four, but probably 10, 15, 20. And we're all still good friends to this day. We've known each other all our lives. We've known each other's families. And we all still love and look out for each other. And that, that is so great. That's a true testament to how the neighborhood was able to raise and mold everybody the way everybody's still tight, still standing. Now, before we close, do you have any shout outs you want to give? And what is one word, if you can describe Boston in one word, what would it be and why? One word for Boston would be resilience. Um, we're resilient. No matter what goes on, no matter what happens, we're going to look out for each other and we're going to get to that next level. Um, now what was the, I'm sorry, what was the other question? Any, any shout outs you want to give before we can close this interview? Well, yeah, um, big shout out to all my Boston um, um, family and friends, man. Um, definitely. 
give Boston a big shout out and um, and a big shout out to Brooke, Burrell, Troy, Anthony, everybody from that scene, man, that um, had anything to do with what was going on during that time, man. Um, big shout out to everybody, all the all the brothers and sisters that we lost and that that have passed away. And um, my prayers go to them and their families. And I know the angels are watching down on us and uh, watch, still watching us grow. Um, you know, just got to continue to stay resilient, continue to stay strong, continue to stay together, continue to look out for each other. Um, we got somebody that we need to get out of office, so we all need to vote. Um, but, you know, um, that's the biggest thing, man, in my family, my wife, my kids. Hey, hey, y'all. I didn't expect the video, the um, interview to go like this, but um, I'm kind of glad. Yeah, like I was stating earlier, I wanted to do this interview to just shine light on a scene that not rarely told. And like I stated earlier, we know the big names, but your group, along with the transitions, every other group out of the Boston scene had a hand in what we saw with New Edition, New Kids, and every group to come out of Beantown. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest with you, like you said, you know, we went through our little thing there, but, you know, like I said, we didn't make no records or get really famous or anything about anything. But to see the new edition come and see Brooke get what he needed because, you know, it was more or less for him, you know what I'm saying? He stayed with it. He learned a lot from us and how to do things there, and he made it work for new edition. And I, for one, I ain't mad at that because the simple fact that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at in my life right now. Um, um, I wouldn't change anything. Um, and be honest with you right now, this is the time to have fun. So glad that, I'm glad that all the stuff is all coming out. You know, we're all getting older, we're all getting out. So now, you know, all the hard stuff is kind of behind us. Now it's kind of just maintaining and, and making sure that we're, we're, we're covered for um, what's coming ahead in the next 20 years. So. Um, but I'm grateful and um, um, for, for everything, like I said, especially with um, Brooke and um, what he's done for me um, and for what he's done for the Boston community. And um, very prideful, very proud, very proud. Yeah, definitely big shout out to you, Brooke, and also shout outs to Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike. Yeah, got to give those guys a shout out. Got to shout out any. Got to give them a shout out. And then also want to shout out Maurice Starr, want to shout out. Danny, Donnie, Jordan, Joey, and John, new kids. Shout out to all Beantown, 617. Even shout out to the Patriots. You guys got our quarterback now, Mr. Dow. <laughs> but that's okay. They're giving, they're giving him hello, man. I heard that he, he still wasn't on the first unit yet. So we'll see. That's uh, We got to see how that's going to turn out. <laughs> I, I, I just want to see how Cam's outfits are going to look now, knowing that he's in New England, knowing that Belichick, just wears a hoodie and says, mm, we're on our way to Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, so I'm hoping yeah, Cam the- has a good year this year in New England if there is a football season. But this interview, yeah. along with past episodes, can be heard on Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and the video content on YouTube at youtube.com slash J85. Click and subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the incredible Mr. Daryl Drumgold Sr. from the Untouchables. Hey. Daryl, thank you for doing this interview with me. Yes, I love you, bro, and thank you, uh, thank you for having me, man. Um, I really appreciate it, man. All right, really God bless. It. God bless you too, my friend. And I'm going to um, 
get on your podcast and uh, start following you on that as well. Yes, sir.